The event that we commemorate this morning is one that we probably underestimate in terms of, in terms of its impact. Even though it's a familiar passage, this coming of the Spirit, Pentecost as we call it, the Feast of Weeks, it was a Jewish festival already set up in order primarily to commemorate the giving of the law. So again, think about, remember, when Jesus gathered with his disciples right before his crucifixion, it was Passover. They were commemorating the deliverance of the people of God from Egypt, from slavery. About 50 days later, Moses received the law on Mount Sinai. We think of it as the giving of the Ten Commandments. Well, it's not like when uh, Jesus was alive that he was uh, completely uh, devoid of influence on, or from his Jewish roots. He was very much Jewish in his practice of uh, his relation or his uh, relating to the Father, in his worship, in the... Uh, uh, kind of the, uh, uh, the, the, the Jewish culture and, and so on. So, his disciples were carrying that on. We're going to read in just a moment from Acts 2 that they were all gathered together and what happened in that moment. Hear these words. When, when, the, days, uh, or when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of, each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them talking in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. O oh God, as we reflect on these familiar words, we pray that you would give us perhaps new insight. Help us to greater appreciate the role of the Spirit, the influence of the Spirit on our own lives as we seek to allow the Spirit to shine through us. In Christ's name, amen. This is probably one of the stranger passages in the New Testament, if we're being completely honest. This idea of the sound of mighty rushing wind and these uh, visual uh, uh, tongues of fire as Luke described them. And the people just trying to make sense of what was going on. In fact, as that passage concludes in verse 12, all were amazed and perplexed. I think all means all, including the disciples who had this experience. What in the world just happened 
<laughs> I ran across a reflection a pastor who visited the Waterford Crystal Factory in Ireland wrote in relation to this passage. And I, th I found it helpful as he sought to use that experience as something of a parable in order to greater express the role of the Spirit in our life. And most of my thoughts today are really based on his, his reflection. I hope you find it helpful too. He said that dur during the tour of this factory over in Ireland, the participants, all of a sudden they were standing there they had just begun the tour, and they heard this crash of breaking crystals. And they all kind of jumped, and the guide said, I won't attempt, although I'm very tempted. My family tells me my Irish accent leaves much to be desired, so I'll save that for them. Uh, but uh, she, she, she reassured them and said, when you get to the showroom and the store, you will find that we don't sell rejects or seconds. There are no seconds in Waterford crystals. Anything that is imperfect and not of the highest quality, we destroy. And then we melt that glass down and start over. You and I have been created in the very image of God. We read earlier and mentioned earlier about the role of the Spirit in creation in the life that we experience even on this earth. It may be overused to uh, th this phrase, but it is true, and that, and that is that God does not make junk. So because of that, we have a responsibility to value life at every stage, to value the life of others, at every stage, to value our own life at every stage, and to remember that we are created by God. We are held up to the light of Christ and declared fit for the kingdom, not because we are perfect, but because in the hands of Jesus and through the fire of the Spirit, we are being transformed. Jesus is the artisan. The fire of the Spirit is the tool that he uses to shape us into the creation that we were made to be. We are called to put ourselves in the hands of the master artist, the Lord Jesus, and let him perfect us. Back to the factory. As they continued their tour, they came upon glass blowers. The section where really the, the, the crystal is just barely beginning to take shape. The furnace is used to heat the glass, the pastor wrote, to the point that it's pliable, was 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit. That's hot! <laughs> it was in that heat that the glass began to take shape, and the glass blower would reach into the furnace with a hollow iron rod and choose just the right amount of molten glass for his or her particular project and, and then start the shaping process. The glass blower would pull the molten glass out of the furnace and begin the process of shaping it. He would blow the glass into the beginning shape and then use wooden molds and tools to finish the process. At our creation, God breathes life into us. 
And then at our salvation, God breathes the presence of the Spirit into our lives in the shaping process as similar to the crystal. The crystallizing process begins to take place in our hearts. And God, too, uses a, a wooden tool to shape and mold us in the fire of the Spirit. And that tool, of course, is the cross. So once the glass is blown, it moves on to the station of the glass cutter. It's shaped and molded and then moved to this station. These are the artisans. A master glass cutter, the pastor wrote, goes through a stringent training. It involves a minimum of five years as an apprentice, three years as a journeyman glass cutter. It's a very precise and specialized skill that requires steady hands, dexterity, and intense concentration. The actual cutting is done at the factory with a cutting wheel, as you can see there on this picture. And because that cutting generates so much heat that the crystal would shatter, the wheel is constantly cooled with water. Each piece, though created to look like something that has been produced before, is unique. No two pieces are exactly the same. Because no two glass cutters hold the piece or cut the piece in exactly the same way. They're unique just like you and I are unique as God's creation. When each piece is finished and inspected, it's bathed in a series of chemical baths. It's cleaned and polished. The process has echoes of water baptism, doesn't it? The physical water may dry up, but the spiritual waters of our baptism still run as the Spirit courses through us. They flow through our hearts as Christ shapes and molds us into God's own unique design. The last portion of the process that I'll mention today, we've seen how the glass is blown, we've seen how the glass is cut, and, and then... Once the piece is shaped and molded and cut, some pieces are also etched. Sometimes special pieces are created or chosen to have further enhancements added through the etching process or sculpting and engraving process, as the slide says there. The etchers or engravers turn beautiful pieces of crystal into almost priceless works of art. When the crystal piece is created, a place is left for the artist to etch anything from sometimes a, a very elaborate woodland scene, even on the crystal itself, to a family crest. In addition to being unique creations of God, we as folk who have been filled with the Spirit are also called for unique purposes. In another passage of Scripture, Paul lays out some of the spiritual giftings that God has given, each with their own role. As I look out at you, I would guess that many of you have I don't know, probably eight, 
a dozen roles that you are in the process of fulfilling almost on a daily basis. You have roles within your family. You have roles within your neighborhood. You have roles within this church. You might have a role that you fulfill at a place of work. There are roles that we fulfill as we are out and about during the day. These roles can sometimes become distracting. As we remember that ultimately our, our, our identity and our role, as important as they each are, our, our identity and our role are to live as disciples of Jesus. We live out that discipleship within the context of those roles, each individualized and unique to us, but we're specially called, specially gifted, specially created to fulfill those roles as Jesus' disciple. That, in a nutshell, is the process of the Waterford Crystal Factory. Now back to the coming of the Spirit. This day, when we remember the initial filling of the Spirit for those gathered some 2,000 years ago, we remind ourselves that we too are in the process of being transformed. That we'll continue to change and be perfected under the hand of the master craftsman who is shaping and molding our lives through the fire of the Spirit. Maybe the craftsman is asking us today to for the first time, or maybe to renew our commitment by placing our lives into his hand, allowing him to continue to shape us, even through the fire of the Spirit, through the various experiences of life. God himself invites us this Pentecost to let the fire of the Spirit warm our hearts and set them on fire just like the early disciples. And then to let the fire of the Spirit shape us, form us, and mold us into the people God would have us to be. Well, thank you to those who assisted uh, during our time away. We are glad to be back and jump back into God, uh, to uh, John's Gospel. We had a good, uh, a good trip to Omaha and a good time in Kansas City, uh, spending some additional time together as a family. I heard good things about uh, our service last week, so thank you. None of us can make uh, certain predictions about the future, but we can make good plans. And one of the things I did during our time away was to outline the passages in John um, at a pace that allows us to conclude our study of the book in time to appropriately commemorate Advent. So I have a plan. You, think, you would think that I would have done something like that before. Uh, even uh, beginning this journey, and I did for a short amount of time and finished it up uh, over these last few weeks. So uh, in, in, the, in the midst of ongoing heat warnings and heat indices well over 100 degrees, it's tough to think about Advent, but it'll be here before we know it. So I pray our journey through what remains of John is helpful for each of us. We're going to take a look at a couple of verses from uh, John chapter 6 this morning, and I'm going to play it, I think. Let's see if I got this to work right. Chapter 6. 
Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. These two stories represent two of the more well-known stories of Jesus' earthly ministry. The feeding of the 5,000 is one of the few miracles that's included in all four of the Gospels. The story of him walking on the water, in addition to here in John, is also found in Matthew and Mark. There's a number of truths that I think that these two stories convey and just individually, standing on their own about God and Jesus as God incarnate, about us as his followers. But I think considering them within one service, considering them kind of back to back instead of having them stand on their own, adds some depth. We're going to keep things pretty high level this morning in terms of our focus and try to catch just a a few things from each story as well as they might as well as what they might teach us when considered together let's start with this feeding of the five thousand you'll remember that jesus ministry in john's gospel is really in full swing his consistent use of signs and ability to heal has caused his popularity to just explode Beyond just being kind of a cool magician who can do tricks, his ability to teach is being noted as rivaling that of the Pharisees and scribes. 
So he appears to, to kind of combine a message of God's presence and evidence of God's presence that really didn't exist before his arrival. What more could you want? This is one who is doing things you've never seen before. His, population, his popularity was reaching a point where quiet time away was more and more difficult to come by, even time with just his disciples. Every time he turned around, a crowd gathered. Even in the opening verses of chapter 6, it says that he noted a, a large crowd. This was a very large crowd. Scholars would kind of warn us that the, uh, the, the numerical identification of the crowd of 5,000, in this picture at least, it looks like, it looks like may, maybe there's one there in the middle that's a lady, and of course the, the little boy in the front, but most of them are men. And that would have been how crowds were counted. So if there's 5,000 men and you figure that most of them probably brought their wives, we're getting close to 10,000, and then if they just had one child per family, and then you're at 15,000, you may be looking at 20,000 people, upwards of 25,000 people wouldn't be out of the question. The opening words of the chapter mention that Passover is nearing. So those gathered would surely have had thoughts of God's provision for their ancestors, both in their deliverance from Egypt and, and then their trip through the wilderness. And you remember the, the story of the way that <coughs> excuse me, God literally rained down food on the people to provide for them after delivering them from Egypt. They would have had this in their mind. And in a similar vein, a feast occurs only because of the simple lunch brought by a young boy. What a moment of excitement and hope this must have caused. The crowd's response certainly reflected that as they planned to make Jesus king by force. And then Jesus, as he does sometimes in the Gospels, just slips away. <laughs> so you have these disciples who started with barely a small pouch of food, now holding 12 baskets of food, probably one basket per disciple. And the people, the, the fervor of the people after the feast that they had experienced was just continuing to escalate and elevate. And, and they want to see more and they want to know what's going to come for supper, right? And, and the disciples say, well, Jesus left. Where did he go? We don't know. When's he coming back? We don't know. If he is he coming back? We don't know. <laughs> I was thinking about the, the crowd control that would have been necessary. Eventually, the crowd disperses. Or maybe even, I, I don't think the, the wording of the passage is completely clear. Whether the disciples maybe got in the boat while the crowd was still there, I think is a real possibility. But one way or another, it probably took a fair amount of time for them to 
at least make their way to the boat. The disciples I'm talking about. When he didn't, when Jesus didn't reappear, the crowd eventually thinned out and it was getting late in the day and it was time for them to go find their own meal. So the crowd thinned, the disciples got in the boat (coughs) and began sailing. Rowing, I guess, is the way the the verb that the uh, text uses. These were experienced fishermen, as you recall. Some of them did it for a living. Three, three and a half, four miles they had rowed. That's a long way. A storm pops up on the Sea of Galilee. Probably dozens, maybe hundreds of times they'd encountered storms. Peter and Andrew and James and John as they were out fishing, trying to provide food for their families for the next day. I wonder what the conversation in the ship was, or in the boat was like before the storm popped up. Is there anything this guy can't do? He healed the man at the pool of Bethsaida. He healed the official's uh, child who was sick from about 20 miles away. He turned water into wine. He just used a Happy Meal to feed 20,000 people. And maybe it was because of their excitement and and expectation about what he would do next, if and when he reappeared, that they didn't know the clouds that they were rowing toward. And all of a sudden, the lightning flashed and the thunder rolled, and they found themselves from feast to the fury of the storm. And then a shadowy figure. I like this depiction where it's not completely clear. We can use context clues to figure out that the figure kind of at the center of that picture is Jesus, but maybe kind of like the disciples. It wasn't like some paintings or some pictures where it's crystal clear. Oh, yeah, that's Jesus on the water. I mean, who would, in their right mind, would expect anyone to be walking across the water? But that's who, or that's what the disciples saw. Jesus had done some weird stuff. I mean, just hours prior, like I said, he apparently multiplied a little kid's lunch to feed a multitude of people. But here he was walking on water in a storm. Jesus was present through each circumstance of the disciples' life. Some of you who have a few years on me or even a few decades on me could speak to this even better than I could, but I do think one of the interesting things about life is how quickly it can change. Either for good or for ways that we would rather avoid. Sometimes a phone call or an unexpected event can take us from feast to fury in the blink of an eye. Last night, actually, I mentioned my brother-in-law's father. We were sitting there, and my sister was in the other room. We were sitting and kind of wrapping up our meal together. We had my, my mom and dad, and then my sisters in Kansas City, and their families over at our house for Father's Day, and 
my brother-in-law's name is Jonathan too, and he, his phone rang, and he picked it up and put it to his ear, and he said, hello? And then he says, uh, where is he? Okay, I'll, I'm on my way. And then he left. And Jean came in the room, and I recounted for her what I had heard from Jonathan's end of the conversation. I said, hey, Jean, he left. I don't know where he went. I don't know who he talked to. I don't know who he was looking for. But in, in just that second, the, the news was from his mother, who is in Oklahoma right now, his mother said, hey, Dad has been in a car accident out of the Legends, and the back end of the car is gone. In that moment, there was a lot unknown. There was a lot of outcomes that were possible, and in that moment, the, the phone call changed the plans that my brother-in-law had for the rest of the night into the early hours of this morning. You've had phone calls like that, too. Where all of a sudden, things change quickly and dramatically. I think the events of these passages, the, the feeding of the 5,000, the feasts that occur on the side of that hill, and, and, and followed immediately by the storm with the disciples on the boat and Jesus walking out to meet them, teaches at least one clear lesson, and that is a simple one. I'm not breaking any new theological ground here this morning, but the lesson is that God is with us. Be it in what looks like <coughs> the meager supplies of a few pieces of fish and biscuits or a shadowy figure walking through a storm, Jesus remains present. Be it in the midst of a feast or in the storm of fury, Jesus is with us. His message to us, regardless of the circumstances we face, echoes his words to a group of tired and scared fishermen. And it's not the only time that he uses this phrase in the Gospel of John, but he says to them, it is I. In the midst of a feast or in the midst of the fury of a storm, do not be afraid. So whether our lives are marked by feasting or fury during this season, let's hold to the words of Jesus this day and each day in deep faith. Amen.